Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, listeners. Good morning, everyone. Yes, this is Annie and Kim. We're here this morning on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. It's actually, if you haven't uh, put your foot out the door, it's actually a reasonable day. So uh, if you're listening, Bob podcast, then it's completely irrelevant. And it could be storming, it could be 40 degrees, you know. You never know because, you know, we've we've been experiencing all of that here in Melbourne at the moment, Uh, extraordinary weather experiences we've been having. Uh, As I've said in previous days, uh, other times, uh, people who uh, don't live in Australia often comment on how weird we are about the weather. But, you know, the weather can kill you. (laughs) <laughs> as the poor people who were affected by the uh, the pollens and uh, other things. Uh, the uh, Well, the media has been calling it a, an asthma uh, epidemic, but in actual fact, I thought it was coming because uh, it was already clear that we, were, we had a, a season that was much more pollen-driven than... Uh, in, I mean, I've been experiencing it and I don't get hay fever, so... Sounds like it was the perfect storm and they don't really understand exactly what will set it off, but it would be great to have a early warning system. But, of course, for all those people who have just got asthma for the first time, there's not really any way of warning them. Yeah, no, but it's very interesting because I think this is one of the things where nature creeps up on us. And uh, you, could, you might think you've got the world all in order and uh, the business about climate change the environment and humans' connection to environment, uh, where the environment isn't just there to be exploited, uh, it's it's as if it's tapping people on the shoulder and uh, telling them, make them aware that uh, you might think you've got it all, all under control, but, you know, the weather has entered the building. Yes. <laughs> might be nice to have a few more native trees in the city rather than those plane trees which seem to set everyone off. <laughs> it's quite interesting. Anyway, I mean, you know, interesting like a hole in the head. But anyway, the program today, we're going to uh, follow up the story of the uh, racehorses churning up the uh, beaches down along the uh, southwest coast. Uh, it's become a bigger story, in fact. It's not just threatening the life, uh, the, envir- uh, the ecosystems along the uh, beaches between Warrnambool and Port Ferry. Uh, it's now moved to uh, changes at, in, in Parliament regarding common, uh, common land and uh, 
a threat to uh, the use of common land for commercial use. So uh, later in this half hour, we're going to have a chat with uh, Shane Howard, who is leading a group of people down along the coast against the use of the uh, the beaches along uh, Warrnambool Port Ferry area as uh, for the use of training race horses and uh, providing alternatives for the needs for the commercial outlets to uh, ha- train their horses in other ways. That's really outrageous. Those beaches <coughs> are beautiful, but also, can I do this? Can I say, think of the children? <laughs> How how a family is meant to go down and enjoy the beach when there's these, you know, whopping big racehorses running up and down it, um, and I'm sure they're also doing some sort of environmental damage. Which, which yeah, they are. The uh, hooded plovers are under threat. Yes, so you'll hear all about that. So this is a follow up interview, and we're going to talk uh, at the by the halfway through this uh, half hour. You'll hear about uh, the update on what's going on there. It's it's actually very serious. And uh, after eight. After eight, uh, we're going to be speaking to um, someone who was at the rally last week, the anti-fascist demonstration, which, spoiler alert, I think was a big success, you might have read in the media. But we're going to be talking to her about her impressions of the day and why she joined the campaign. Yeah, fantastic. This is the week that was. We'll come uh, in the second uh, part of uh, the next half hour. And uh, then we're going to talk to Humphrey McQueen. Humphrey's got more interesting stuff to talk about in regards to the economy, that intractable beast that we all have to adore. (laughs) Workers of the world unite. In this climate of divide and conquer, it's time for us to take to the streets and defend multiculturalism and diversity. Victoria Trades Hall and a coalition of trade unions are organising a global street party and you're invited. Saturday the 10th of December. Rallying at the State Library at 12pm, then marching to Trades Hall for a street party on Ligon Street. There'll be bands, rides for the kids, music and tonnes of food. There'll also be some political forums about race, racism and how to fight back. This event is brought to you by Trades Hall, NTEU, the ETU, the AMIEU, the AMWU, the CWU, the ASU, Geelong Trades Hall, Ballarat Trades Hall and Australia Asia Worker Links. Workers of the world are united and will never be defeated. For more information, contact Matt Kunkel on 0405 748 242. Global Street Party, Saturday the 10th of December. State Library at 12pm. A 3CR supporter. It's always a shock to hear your own voice, isn't it, Kim? Yes, it is. I'm really impressed that you got through all those acronyms. Oh, that's right. And it's great to see all those acronyms <laughs> at the Global Street Party. That's right, and that's uh, December the 10th. It should be a great time. It, it starts off, as it says, on the steps of uh, uh, the State Library, and then it uh, wanders up off, off up to a great time to, uh, to be had by all at the uh, foot of uh, Trades Hall up in uh, Ligon Street, corner of Ligon and uh, Victoria Parade. It should be a great time. It Go. does sound like a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, uh, you know, pre-Christmas drinks for, for the left, you've got to admit. 
Yes. <laughs> it's great. Um, there's this fantastic press release that uh, IPAN has put out, Independent and Peaceful Australian Network. We've been uh, talking about, and probably everybody's been talking about, or anybody who's alive has been talking about the arrival of Trump as as the head honcho at uh, that uh, remarkable country of freedom, uh, America. <laughs> And uh, their uh, press release is uh, apps truly uh, to the point. Apparently, Trump's selection provides opportunity to reassess the fundamentals of Australians' defence policy because, of course, Trump and many of the uh, unwise members of the American population have, uh, have a very a firm belief that Americans shouldn't be poking their noses into other people's foreign affairs, uh, that they should actually be sticking to the important issues at at home. In fact, this is confirmed by the fact uh, that many of the people who live in America think that Australia is actually Austria and that they aren't really uh, very aware of all the places that uh, America is actually interfering. Uh, But they also obviously aren't aware that... uh, the American foreign policy is really directly linked to their economic uh, expansion across the world. I've heard people compare it to the Roman Empire where you have, what are they called, Uh, garrets everywhere, those kind of bases that they have. And because the US is declining in economic power, what it has left is its military power. And so it throws that around. That's the advantage that it has over China. Well, that's it's one scary. Anal- yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, that's one analysis that I've heard. Yeah, exactly. But this uh, press release from IPAN is really fascinating because the US president-elect, Donald Trump, has served notice of a US withdrawal from a protective military role for allies in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. He has urged these allies to take responsibility for their own defences. He has claimed that he intends to pull American military forces back from its outposts in over 90 countries. How about that? Well, that's just rude, don't you think? Malcolm Turnbull was like the second person to call him after he was elected. (laughs) Exactly. I can imagine Malcolm Turnbull having, you know, crying in the corner now. (laughs) Suki Lara, you reckon? Yes. (laughs) Anyway, um, Nick Dean, who's uh, from the Independent and Peaceful Australian Network, IPAN, he said that uh, Trump's election has removed a major plank underlying the defence strategies of successive Australian governments which have consistently relied on the US as our fundamental protector. They have led Australia into US-initiated wars, which have caused the unnecessary death and suffering of millions of civilians. Anyway, it's uh, a new independent approach to defence has now become imperative, says Mr Dean. And uh, it's IPAN urges the Australian government to now draw toward, together the best military defence and foreign policy experts to develop a comprehensive and independent Australian defence policy, which includes military, civil and industry involvement. Very fascinating. It is. And I think as well, a lot of people had the analysis that Australia was kind of a, in some ways, would just follow the US into these wars and was a dupe. But I think actually it's key to Australia's own imperialist project in the Asia-Pacific region 
having the US as a partner. Oh, I think so. And it's deeply tied to economic. They're not being nice guys. It's, they're not doing us a favour. You just have to look at the uh, history of Bougainville, the history of West Papua, all of these countries that have got masses of resources and Australian industrial and corporate uh, interests are in there like Flynn. We're not the nice guys. We're not the nice guys. But... Uh, they all apparently, if you wear a suit and talk in a, a nice, even voice, you can get away with anything. Solving our job agency crisis, an unemployed workers' union event, this Sunday, twenty seventh, two pm to six pm. Two pm, job agency stories from both sides of the counter, soaring penalties and bullying in a no jobs market. 3pm, launch of the Unemployed Workers' Union Hotline Report, followed by refreshments. 5pm to 6pm, panel discussion. Free unemployed workers' rights booklets will be available. Solving our job agency crisis. This Sunday, 27th, 2pm to 6pm. Unitarian Church, 110 Gray Street, East Melbourne. Unwaged free, $5 waged. Unemployed Workers' Union, a 3CR supporter. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. And as promised, the conversation that we had with uh, Shane Howard, who lives down near Kalani Beach, which is uh, a lovely part of the world, I have to say. Uh, probably more lovely when it's not inundated with uh, holiday makers, but that's probably not what the holiday makers think. However, that's where I hearken from. So uh, there's uh, a reason to be displeased by uh, the incursion of commercial interests on the beaches down there because they are just lovely, those beaches. It's one of the most extraordinary things about uh, that area, the landscapes and the uh, the beauty of the uh, seascapes. So uh, they're under threat. They are actually under threat. So let's hear about what that threat is. We talked to you a couple of weeks ago about uh, horses being trained on Kalani Beach and uh, how it was endangering the environment down there for the hooded plover, but also for the humans who are the locals down there. But there have been developments, haven't there? Well, uh, just the state government announced made an announcement uh, in the last week that... Um, uh, that they would proceed with um, authorising uh, horse training for beaches. And the announcement they made is basically to allow... Uh, what it leads to, they say, you know, their, the Andrews Labor government issued a press statement saying that this is... Um, they'd solve the problem of the beaches and they were protecting the hooded plovers and it's all good news. It was just spin... Um, and full of very dubious figures, and basically they had used very inflated figures of the numbers of horses on the beaches and said they were reducing the numbers, when the fact is that they've increased the numbers that are now going to be on the Belfast Coastal Reserve. And the Belfast Coastal Reserve, Annie, runs from Warrnambool to Port Ferry, basically. It's about a 20-kilometre stretch, a thin little narrow stretch of recovering dunes and coastline, and um, it's home to the endangered hooded plover. 
to put that in context, there are less than 600 in Victoria remaining, and the Belfast Coast Reserve has about 11% of that population. But more importantly, the Belfast Coast Reserve-based beaches are responsible for 50% of the successful breeding. Um, so, you know, it's a really significant area for the hooded plover and lots of other shore birds and migratory birds, birds that fly in from Siberia, birds like the red-capped plover, um, the pied oyster catcher, the sooty oyster catcher. It goes on and on. It's a very um, important little uh, um, wetland system and um, BirdLife Australia have uh, articulated and identified that very, very clearly. There's lots of surveys and studies go on all the time on the importance of this uh, wetland system. It's interesting you and should say this, Shane, because uh, just just to give people an idea of just how important a stop-off point of this nature for birds is, there were recent, uh, on a much larger scale, I mean, very obvious scale, the disappearance of large amounts of birds because of the industrialisation of swamplands in China. And and it's similar to this notion that in Tokyo, for example, they uh, record bird sounds and play them in the air because the birds have disappeared. I'm not sure people really understand yeah. the gravity of this. Well, the... Yeah, the little hooded plover is, a, is it, the canary in the coal mine. And to put it in context, Annie, there are, Bob Brown was telling me recently, the rate of extinctions in the world at the moment is 10,000 times the natural order. Like, it's, they're terrifying statistics. And uh, with, you know, the, um, with what the bad government have just um, approved in New South Wales, authorising the... Um, the capacity for farmers to clear fell native um, mm. bushland for grazing uh, and for cropping. Um, and further news that we just got yesterday is that the Andrews Labor government, Lily D'Ambrosio, who is supposed to be the Minister for the Environment and Climate Change and Energy, um, they are proposing to change the Crown Land Reserves Act of 1978 um, to approve um, horse training on the Belfast Coastal Reserve. Um, so special treatment? It's very special treatment here, and basically to approve the granting of licences by the delegated land managers to the Warnable Racing Club and or to individual horse trainers yeah, for the purpose of horse training on beaches over the area of Crown Land, being portion of beaches between Warrnambool and Port Ferry, like this is nuts. This, this is really, completely... this really shows how incredibly influential the racing lobby is in Victoria. Well, I think it goes beyond that, Annie, because this does not make any sense at all. You know, um, why would a government do this? when there are endangered species at risk, this whole environment of that area is at risk. One of the few recovering landscapes we've got left in this part of southwest Victoria. There's the Belfast Coastal Reserve, a recovering system, Tower Hill, a recovered landscape, and then you've got to go and Framingham Forest, which is a postage stamp left for Indigenous people. You've got to go almost to the Grampians before you find any more natural land 
left. And the only reason we can think of that the Andrews government are doing this is that this is a thin edge of the wedge and they are actually trying to put in place a legal precedent to allow commercialisation of public land. And this is something that the whole state should be very concerned about because this is um, out of sight, out of mind, but it sets a very dangerous precedent that basically says the government can authorise commercial activity on Crown land. Okay. Now, just before I let you go, and that is, of course, the salient point here, um, has it been proposed at all from government uh, or commercial outlets that actually it's their responsibility to actually uh, develop their own commercial um, uh, businesses and that actually this is a ready-made idea for creating a business opportunity, an artificial training arrangement for horses? Well, in the in our group, the Belfast Coast Reserve Action Group, this is what we've been saying all along. We're not anti-horse racing. Like, um, this is what Ballarat have done very, very effectively, committed the resources, and they've built a deep saning, training, sand training track to emulate sand dunes and beach training. It's what happens in Newmarket in the UK. It's what happens in Kildare in Ireland, the car of Kildare. It's what happens in America. A lot of American friends have come back and said, um, wow, that's really weird. We train on tracks here. So basically, so what you're saying is that, I mean, what we're saying is that it's lazy capitalism, isn't it? They're lazy. It's really lazy thinking and it's really lazy... um, yeah, it is right, lazy, laissez-faire capitalist thinking. Like That's before we even touch on the issues of public safety. Families on beaches, fishermen, um, board riders. You know, if I go to the Warrnambool or any racing track on a training day, a training morning, if I walked out onto the training track, people would tell me, get off the track, you'll get killed. But how is it okay without any barriers, any safety mechanisms, that we can put 50 horses a day on East Beach is what's proposed. Um, you know, that's 200 hooves a day running up and down the beach. The ecological and environmental damage, the threat to public safety, the commercialisation of public land. That's just one of four proposed options along this coastal reserve. What about but, um, we, tourism? What about, isn't tourism well, an important <laughs> commercial aspect of that area? Well, it's a no-brainer, really, Annie. I mean, they say that, you know, there's figures touted that um, the racing industry is is worth between $70 million or so to the local economy. But in Moynshire alone, who did their own survey 12 to 18 months ago, you know, tourism, and that's not including day visitors or international visitors, is worth $300 million a year. If you factor Warrnambool, into that as well. It's probably close to a billion dollars. The number one reason that people said in a survey that they come to Moynshire and the Port Ferry region and these beaches is because of the pristine beaches. They do not come to watch horses train. So there's, you know, we could see the sport of kings destroy the jewel and the crown here and we could find that it actually impacts economically as well. So actually it's not about money, it's just that they want to do it and they want to flex their muscles. Well, I cannot for the life of me understand, and none of us can in, in, in our group, 
why the Andrews Labor government would go down this path when it potentially is could have such dire consequences for the tourism economy, which is, you know, um, by a factor of more than 10 greater than the contribution of the racing industry in the region, and could severely impact on the whole region's economy. And the only reason you can possibly come up with is that they want to set a legal precedent to allow commercialisation of public land and public commons. There, you cannot find any other um, plausible reason. Just to follow that up, one of the areas Rutledge is cutting um, that is proposed as one of the other horse training areas, one of the other beaches, last in the last few days, 65 hooded plovers were flocking on that site where they're proposing to have the horses running. That's 11% of Victoria's hooded plover population in one spot. I mean, this is so wrong on so many levels, Annie, that there is no plausible reason, no environmental assessment being done, no public safety report being done. It's just the government, government ramming this through the parliament um, and obviously the agenda is to set a legal precedent and look, it's very concerning for the whole state and for the country. Um, this is happening in New South Wales and we should be very alarmed because our public land, our public commons are now under threat. Uh, what should people do to help out this campaign? Well, write letters to the Environment Minister, to Daniel Andrews, uh, to Josh Frydenberg, the Federal Minister, send them emails, uh, remind them of their duty of care, that they are our public servants, they work for us, and they have a duty of care. There should be due process, transparency, and the laws that govern these things should be upheld. Um, failing that, Come down and help us because uh, in southwest Victoria, if you can, because the day is coming on December the 1st and the reality is we will not allow this to happen on our beaches and we will do whatever we can to protect the hooded plovers, to protect our shoreline, to protect our families and to protect this area from this kind of barbarism. So you're saying down at Kalani Beach? Uh, that's Kalani Beach, the Cutting East Beach um, and these are the proposed areas for commercial horse training of up to 150 horses a day. And um, and the community are pretty livid about it. I'm not surprised. Uh, and, and they have not been properly consulted. This, has been, this is the state government running roughshod over the local people. And once again, you know, it's the government thinking that the state of Victoria is Melbourne. You know, and it's... it's uh, it's yet again another case of regional areas being just run over by um, state government bullying. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. This land is mine All the way to the old fence line Every break of day I'm working hard just to make it pay
Hello, Nazreen. Hi, hello. How are you? I'm good. Um, this is Kim. Me and Nazreen, you see, Annie, we met at the rally last week, the anti-fascist rally. Yes. That's great. Yeah, it was a great experience. Yeah, I, um, I saw Nazreen speak at the rally and I was very taken. So I asked her to speak today. I was wondering, Nazreen, if you could give us a little report back on your impressions from the rally last week. Um, it was an amazing experience for me, especially um, seeing so many people uh, standing up for what is just and right um, because, and seeing the racist side on the few numbers. I mean, that speaks for itself, like, you know, um, Donald Trump winning over U.S. is not the end of the world. The majority of the people are good, and we are going to unite together, and we will stand up for what is just and right. And that rally was the expression of um, the people's views and the numbers. So we were, you know, um, able to express our, you know, that, you know, we are not over, we will stand up and we will work together. I think it was fantastic. The official, well, the numbers that were reported I saw in The Guardian was apparently there was 40 of them at some time, although I think we heard less on the rally. And I don't know about you, but I never actually was able to see them. Yeah, I didn't see them at all. And the other thing is, um, uh, you know, they reported like 200, but I felt like we were like 500 or something, <laughs> We like, even though the numbers, but the people's inspiration, you know, together, the way we were chanting and walking together, that was, it felt like, you know, a huge number of people on our side. I didn't see them at all. Yeah, it was fantastic. We also imported some chants that have apparently been used in the US against Trump at some of the rallies there. So that kind of international solidarity was fantastic. What were the chants? Oh. I don't know if there was there was something to do with maybe you remember Nazarene, but it was it ended with no fascist USA. I think it's no KKK, no fascist USA. I don't remember the start of it. I think it was just no Trump, no KKK, no fascist USA. I think another one was something similar, like you know, from uh, California to something like in Melbourne, and then like one um, there is no like no bad thing that. From there, like to here, we we are not going to allow like racism and bigotry. Yeah, Something, I think there um, was the one kind. with um, uh, Palestine as well. Yeah, there was um, yeah from Palestine to something like that. So, so yeah, no, Nazreen, Nazreen, this is particularly important for you, isn't it? Because uh, you you've come to Australia. Oh, this is very important, um, yeah, especially at this time, like last few years. Uh, since September 11, what, what's happening is really, really, uh, you know, for the Muslim community and uh, really concerning. Uh, I've been here like over 26 years, but I've never seen like this type of like since Tony Everett came into power. I mean, John Howard's time was really bad, but Tony Everett, when he came, like he's all this uh, debate in the parliament about the Bulka ban, the Nikab ban, and all this kind of thing. And uh, that, that lady, Jackie Lemby, she started all those silly arguments. And then all the Muslim women were getting attacked. Um, and I was also attacked. And then the Sydney siege happened when I was attacked two days in a row in the, in the train. 
And that just makes me like, you know, I need to wake up because previously I even didn't care about who the prime minister is and who the premier, like which party. So I was completely living in a, my own shell, like peaceful life, you know, didn't bother because we, we are migrant. We had to work hard, like three kids, full-time job. Not, I even like started from BC, then went to uni, you know, when my daughter was four months old. So all this hard work, we tried to establish ourselves, but we didn't bother about what's happening around us. But then when I was again and again, even with my small, my sons, when they were like eight and ten, like we went to Cobert Park, and then a couple with their three children, like started like yelling, shouting, terrorists, you know, you're hiding bomb under your dress, all this kind of thing. It was so terrible, and then the more every time I was going to the police, and then every time I was told, no, no, there's no case, we can't um, have any case against them because you know nah, there's no act like you know no under the legal banner they can get away with you know everything easily. So this is how they are supported by the legal system, and that's when I thought, then this is not right. And if we keep sleeping like this, you know, just living in our own shell, we we can't make our voice reach to the people that this is happening. So I thought, okay, I will at least wherever I see, like, there are supportive people around me, like you guys did. That's really great. And that's when I thought, you know, I can go there and express my uh, my side of the uh, issues. But, you know, this is not right. And, you know, it can't go on forever. It's absolutely and fantastic. I think as well you can see how racist the legal system is where you have these young Muslim boys locked up basically for thought crimes and yet these yeah. racist attacks they don't do anything about. No. And how can these, like, in, uh, as you can see, like, um, they, um, the house raids, you know, that's when I wrote a letter. Like, if you search on the internet Nasrin and racism, you'll see some of my work. I started with, um, I wrote the open letter on racism in Australia, Stop the Silence. That's when I broke my silence. And then I, um, um, like, I was shocked. Basically, on my Facebook, my first post on my Facebook was when I was attacked, like, after Sydney siege. Because before that, even I didn't know how to use Facebook. That's when, like, um, I'm using this tool as sharing and posting all the racism-related or injustice-related issues. Uh, because um, and when the raid in Melbourne, like in Sydney, you know, eight hundred police officers to raid the sixty-nine people and the sixty-nine houses and eight hundred police. One, yeah, eight hundred police officers to raid sixty-nine Muslim houses and like torturing them, like the females were not respected. You know, in front of the it was total chaos, and I just couldn't believe this is happening in Australia. That was Tony Abbott's time, I think, and then, then the Sydney siege, in one after another, and then in Melbourne, in the Anzac Day terror plot, whatever that, and the, the way they bashed the kids, I mean, it doesn't matter if they're guilty or not. Let the justice system work properly. Let them get through the trials, you know, have a fair go. Doesn't matter what culture, what religion, what color they are, they should have a fair go. Not like their fathers were bashed, you know, to bleed, held un, like uh, um, face down on the floor. Their mother screaming. The sister had a twenty. I think the Aboriginal family was the most, you know, hit 
bashed really, really badly. I mean, that's when I wrote to Senator Janet Rice that, you know, we can't keep on going like this. And that's when I started to think about, like, we need, I need to do something. And then I started writing to all the Islamic organizations and other organizations. The Faulkner Community House, Senator Janet Rice, they all helped me. And then um, eight other Islamic organizations, like it was supported by Islamic Council of Victoria. So last year, August, I organized at Coburg. Uh, Coburg Town Hall, and Sue Bolton was also there. Um, Islamophobia, raising community awareness, that event. But after that, like this year, we had that Coburg rally. It was really good. I gave a speech over there. But then at that rally, I mean, I saw how much the media did the publicity for the racist and hardly did any coverage for the the peaceful side of the rally. We were like, we didn't see any any of those um, fighting the bad people did over the other side. And they didn't focus on the peaceful side at all. Like the 500 people we were here at the Coburg in front of the library, and we had such a peaceful, beautiful rally. That showed like people did really care about racism in the Coburg area, like northern suburbs. And, you know, how media always focus on giving them free publicity. There was uh, the rally that happened last uh, Sunday, that also showed that there were plenty of people who were prepared to stand up against racism. Yes, definitely. Majority of people are good. I and think only few are bad, but these few are getting free ride on the media. Media always, you know, showing their side of the story favorably, especially the Herald Sun. I can't believe like they have someone like Andrew Bolt. You know, yeah. it's just, I just. Unbelievable. It is. And I think the media has so much to answer for, especially in terms of they're basically given Pauline Hanson a huge platform. They say that she's a terrorism expert when she's got no expertise whatsoever. Nothing. She speaks like a silly, like irrational fear, just fear mongering and hate preaching. That's what they're doing. Have you got any idea? Have you any feelings about. uh, why it's this racism card is being used? Uh, I mean, in the sense that, as you said, you you've been here for twenty six years. You you kept your head down. You worked really hard, and you did. You know, I'd have to say the Australian thing. You yeah, built yeah. your family. You built your future. That's what people do. Exactly. And quite often, they don't care much about the politics until something yeah. is up against their own face. Why do you exactly. th- yeah, why do you think this race card is uh, so important for the political uh, powers that be at the moment? I mean, based on my limited knowledge of the only last recent like say one year or so I'm getting all this news, it's about you know divide and conquer. They're trying to justify you know Donald Trump made silly comments like Muslims hate us, something like that. It's all because so that they just want to like I've seen like movies and everything they perpetrate like the Arabs are barbaric and I'm not from Arab background like I'm from Indian subcontinent area but then see this uh, they always portray Muslims as bad people is because they just want to manufacture public consent so that they can go and invade the Arab land that's what the public you know it's all about power and control of who you know oil going over there but then people will be up against all this injustice. You know, he, normal human beings, they don't, they don't, majority of them, they wouldn't allow this to happen. But this type of media publicity will show, yeah, 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 Muslims are really bad people. Let's go and invade them. You, um, how is uh, your work? How, do you feel that you're having some effect? 
Um, you mean what do the work? You mean? Well, okay. you, you've now become politicised. Basically, that's you're standing up. You're you're having oh, my, your own work. He, um, yeah, I'm getting inspired. I'm uh, feeling like I'm much more aware of what's happening in the world, especially like um, you know, I, I didn't know much about what's happening in Palestine, what's happening in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, in Syria, now I'm much more aware of all those issues. And basically I see the, uh, lots of anger in the Muslim youth, frustration, you know. And I see that the way our legal system and the, uh, the polit- politicians are behaving, they're just going to make things worse because, you know, these youth, they have valid concerns. And if non-Muslims like you guys can express something, Muslims should be able to express the same concern. So, you know, like you people will not support injustice in Palestine, injustice in Syria or Iraq. So these Muslim youth have the same feelings. But as soon as they express their feelings, because they need to hide their feelings, because they know that they will be targeted. They will be targeted by all these um, institutions, you know, officials. So that's why they sometimes, if they're going in hiding, they can't even express the feelings to the Muslim community because they will be questioned. So they are going in hiding and probably going into wrong crowd, like mixing with wrong crowd online. So I feel like we need to give this Muslim youth a safe space where they can come and express their concerns. So we need to, if we do not give the people this opportunity to come to like express their concern, express express that we are not going to support this Australian foreign policy, like invading other countries for and killing innocent people. Like you know, 1.2 million people has been killed in Iraq, and you know, and. So much bloodshed happening in the Muslim world, and then Australia is a friendly ally of the US. I mean, I can't believe this. Yeah, it's incredible. And I think really you see what's happened in Iraq has actually created monsters like ISIS. It's actually what the US government has done. Um, And that's really widely acknowledged by any credible source. Um, And they supply that weapon to them. And they, you know, that's what has happened in Afghanistan as well. They, They trained Osama. Bin Laden, and they supplied all the weapons, and they blame them. They, that's just, they just set the ground so that they can invade that country. And they I guess just, it's, it, the important thing, of course, is that, uh, I mean, it's a personal battle too. I mean, we're in, in Australia, people need to actually stand up. Exactly, and people are not seeing these because they are just misguided by the media, misrepresentation by the media. Well, that's fantastic, and thank you so much for talking to us, Nazreen, and um, I hope that you continue to stand up, and we definitely will. Oh, thank you very much for organising the rally and giving me the opportunity to speak, and thank you for all those listening, and I hope um, you know, more people will be standing up for justice and what is right. Fantastic. Made in Melbourne Film Festival returns for its eighth consecutive year celebrating the drive and diversity of local and Victorian filmmakers, expanding to a mass of 13 sessions over six nights, covering short film, feature film, high school, music video and web series at five of Melbourne's most sought-after venues. Made in Melbourne kicks off in December with feature film The Legend of Ben Hall at Acme. Full program and tickets on sale now via mim.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Workers of the World Unite, 
In this climate of divide and conquer, it's time for us to take to the streets and defend multiculturalism and diversity. Victoria Trades Hall and a coalition of trade unions are organising a global street party and you're invited. Saturday the 10th of December. Rallying at the State Library at 12pm, then marching to Trades Hall for a street party on Ligon Street. There'll be bands, rides for the kids, music and tonnes of food. There'll also be some political forums about race, racism and how to fight back. This event is brought to you by Trades Hall, NTEU, the ETU, the AMIEU, the AMWU, the CWU, the ASU, Geelong Trades Hall, Ballarat Trades Hall and Australia Asia Worker Links. Workers of the world are united and will never be defeated. For more information, contact Matt Kunkel on 0405 748 242. Global Street Party, Saturday the 10th of December. State Library at 12pm. A 3CR supporter. Yeah, you're on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. We were going to have a... I don't know if people saw that poll that came out a couple of weeks ago that so shocked everyone that 49% of people in Australia were supposedly against Muslim migration. Which oh, was all that little... free publicity from mainstream media has been working. Yes, um, but there's also been some doubt thrown on that figure, which makes me feel a little bit better. Um, Monash uh, University professor Andrew uh, Marcus um, has criticised the nature of the questions, so the binary nature of questions asking things outright, like, do you, um, are you a racist, yes or no? <laughs> Those sort of questions. Well, some of my best friends are. So, yeah, well... <laughs> He pointed to yeah. Res- I want to wear that hat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, he pointed to research undertaken over many years by uh, Roy Morgan, which found little change in attitudes to Muslim immigration since 2010. So, when asked about the subject in October, 58% of respondents said that they supported Muslim migration, while 33% were opposed. So that's up from 28% in 2015, but it's actually lower than the 35% that was recorded in 2010. So it sounds like, I mean, I'm not a statistician, but like it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, And this is statistics from the Annual Mapping Social Cohesion Study, which did not ask specific questions about Muslim migration, but looked for sentiments, which is, according to this um, professor, is apparently how it should be done. I wonder if they uh, decided to do a a survey and ask people if they thought that Hindus should be allowed to come to the, be emigrate emigrate to here, Hindus or Sikhs or, I don't know, animists or, (laughs) I mean, if it was, uh, I mean, religious uh, belief structures... Uh, aren't high on people's uh, common understanding of the world, actually. Only a small percentage of people see the world through a religious prism these days. Yes. So uh, it's interesting to uh, focus on one religious group, uh, you know, people who hold a particular faith. You know what I mean? Yes. And I'm not sure exactly what the first study, the questions that they asked, but I know from research they've done on refugees that asking questions like 
do you think that boat people should be allowed to come to Australia? When you use language like that instead of <laughs> language like if there was someone fleeing war and famine and they came to Australia, do you think that they should be looked after? People are much more likely to say yes to that than if you use all the media buzzwords. Yeah, right. Outrageous. You're on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. This is the week that was, is coming. A week solidarity, Bricky team listener, when who would have thought, who would have thought, not a grey hair to be seen, Nick Xenophobe of the modestly titled eponymous Nick Xenophobe party and hang em high Darren Lynchum voting to smash evil unions and evil workers. Hands up anyone who thought for one second these exemplars of balance and fairness would vote to crush workers and unions. Suppose, seriously, the only one, the only who would have thought is why they bother wasting time by suggesting they're still thinking about whether they will smash the workers when there is never any doubt. Although Nick votes to smash only those workers who are evil, who continue the dated rubbish about class war and class struggle, and Nick's vote to smash unions and workers does not include good, good workers who, like Nick, are neither caring business class nor socialists who consider each issue on its merits before voting to smash anti-social forces like workers and unions. And anyway, there was no semblance of class war or class struggle in this case because the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Makalia Kosh, the workers, said the legislation to bash unions was not union bashing. There is a clear difference between bashing unions and union bashing. The words are in a different position for a start, and and I could go on. Thankfully, she didn't. Poor Darren argued the law did not go far enough. I can't see the essential clause that evil union bosses should never be released or, where appropriate, should be sent back to where they came from, and surely capital punishment should at least be considered. Darren said he was not anti-union, as if anyone would think he was. Of course I'm not. I'm a great supporter of the True Blue Aussie Business Profits Council, for instance, and I have great regard for the police association and, like their members, despair at the fact that evil criminals like shoplifters and beggars are often given release dates by lily-livered goody-goody judges. In the lead-up to the vote on the Smash the Evil Union's Jack Boots Commission, we look forward to daily deliberations, daily conscience-racking by Nick and Darren et al. on the crossbenches. And, of course, they haven't made up their minds yet. They're still pontificating the sensible, centre-balanced world between caring business class and socialist. The crossbenches are well-named, aren't they? They certainly make us cross. On the Get Evil Union Bosses bill this week, the Socialist Party said it was prepared to discuss a deal with the government. We've got to admire their solidarity, haven't we? Any wonder workers so put their faith in them. Although the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review knows they're in it up to their necks with the evil, evil criminal unions. P1 story this week about a New South Wales union official, a heavy player in that socialist hotbed, the New South Wales Socialist Party right, whose record includes convictions for serious domestic violence. He sounds like a real charmer, but... This expose led the Capitalist Review to run an entire editorial, Labor should be ashamed of this, 
And I thought, when caring business class crooks get exposed, we always see righteous editorials. Liberal coalition should be ashamed of this. Incidentally, the right-wing Hebby's family says the events occurred nine years ago and anti-domestic violence intervention had worked. They are still happily together and the story has embarrassed them no end. The poor Capitalist Review must feel so abashed, so abashed it pitted the family's reputation right next to Macalia Kosh, the workers using the story to attack the Socialist Party and evil unions as the cause of all domestic violence and crime generally in True Aussie. The righteous also exploded with justified indignation, indeed anger, after a Terranullius person claimed the Terranullius Immigration Department and leaders at the time had made a mistake allowing no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people from England to settle in True Blue Aussie, which was then not True Blue Aussie, circa 1788. Ten out of ten criminals who have terrorised our people have been the first, second and umpteenth generation of those illegal migrants, the Terranullius person alleged. The usual Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin columnist went borderline insane that a people who weren't even here, the Terranullius people, could display such ingratitude to those who not only liberated them, but civilised them, lifted them out of savagery and paganism, brought them the celestial benefits of Christianity, of the dear baby Jesus. And the current Minister for Concentration Camps, raise a wire and sink the boats, Peter Duffer, said it for all of us. This is a, like, you know, racist-motivated attack condemning a whole race for the actions of a, like, few, and assumes that attempts at assim- assim- assimilation, Pete, yeah, that's it, like, assim- assimilation, like, thwarted by, like, you know, ungrateful savages, was terrorism. Why, to show the depths to which these black, ungrateful savages, uh, you know, like racists, will, like, sink, they even claim a great true blue Aussie who has been honoured with a federal white seat named after him, Angus Macmillan, is a, like, terrorist, whereas real students of history, like, you know, like me, know Angus would not have had to kill thousands of these black ingrates if they had, like, removed themselves peacefully and lawfully from land which was not theirs, you know, like, not to remove themselves from. Uh, Yes, Peter, by the way, what generation of refugees and migrants are you? I don't like follow. I'm a proud, you know, true blue Aussie. I'm not a refugee or migrant. I I come from a long line of duffers. Uh, Yes, yes, but when did the line of duffers migrate to true blue Aussie? How many generations? What, What generation migrant are you? I told you, I don't follow. I'm a real true blue Aussie. Interesting, you don't look black. Uh? Pete and his big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull attacked the socialists for whipping up race, hatred and terrorism by misrepresenting what Pete said. Uh, Yes, how did they represent him? They, like, quoted me. Yes, they quoted him. Gross, unbelievable irresponsibility. A good point, and their misrepresentation is compounded by the fact they are politicians themselves, and no politicians can never be trusted. So the odds are Pete hasn't got a racist bone in his body, unless he says he hasn't got a racist bone in his body, which would prove, well, I'm sure we follow.
And look, sometimes this segment can unfairly criticise the greatest little economic order of them all, but deep down we have to admire its capacity for forward planning, for thinking long term, for its selfless crusade to lift even the most evil of workers and drudges with the rising tide. Take the two blue Aussies Business Profits Council's Jennifer Bestercut Taxes in an article this week telling us it is best to cut taxes. Not all taxes, mind you, but taxes on the rich, because then those droplets of yellow liquid will trickle down on the undeserving. See, tax cuts increase profits, increase productivity, and the problem they acknowledge of slow wage growth will be overcome. Wages for the undeserving will soar through the roof. The time will be right to give workers a huge, huge wage rise, making caring employers as happy as caring employers can be. Now, this shows Jennifer's capacity for forward planning. Indeed, the system's capacity for her perspicacity for on the very opposite page to Jennifer's argument that big, big business is the overtaxed lifeblood of our great society. Another article pointing out that since the 1980s, the economic rationalist capture of the greatest little economic order, profits have soared, productivity has soared, and real wages have collapsed. So this proves Jennifer's brilliance. She knows 30 years of planning so wages could increase is about to hit the target. Because she says the way to increase real wages is to make profits soar even more and productivity soar even more. The problem, clearly, they haven't soared enough over 30 years and then apparently workers won't be sore. So it's obviously a 30-year plan by great capitalist visionaries like Maggie Thatched Hair and Ronnie Reagan and those wise economists who captured their imagination, if their economic philosophy could be so called. Finally, as the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin balances a P1 story yesterday about the public purse paying costs to an evil union after a legal matter, with praising the spending of $350 million plus of presumably mostly the public purse on more and more lavish upgrades at the tennis centre where Jennifer and the beneficiaries of the soaring profits and soaring productivity can spend a few well-deserved relaxing leisure hours over summer, reminding us to say thank you John Kane, the workers and socialist governments who realised the ideal spot for the rich to enjoy their pastime was on the spot where the rallies were verbal as the Yarra Bank speakers, long-haired commies and others argued their philosophies for years and the May Day marches terminated with fiery speeches from evil union bosses and their supporters. Best to terminate May Day itself and join the sophisticated cultured souls in a bit of leisure at public expense and restrict May Day to its proper activity. Dance round the Maypole and eat cake and know all's well with the world that could be even weller if only we could get rid of evil unions. Next they'll be demanding workers should be able to afford to enjoy the facilities just because they were built at their expense. Their evil knows no bounds. Good morning. And we're back. This is Annie and Kim on Solidarity Breakfast. And we are joined by Humphrey McQueen. How are you, Humphrey? Ah, very well, thank you all. How are you both? Good. Yes, I'm good, thank you. Good. You've you've brought in a big, heavy, weighty subject. You're going to talk about the economics. 
situation. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know. The weather is, I'm going to say, there is a rhinoceros in the room. Oh, watch you out. You can't deny it. Yeah, <laughs> there is. pretending it's not there. That's exactly right. And I was fascinated by uh, your uh, observation that the uh, people at the um, Reserve Bank seem to have spent a lot of time telling and uh, getting intelligent people to believe that uh, actually it's... Uh, all about algebra, and algebra is real. Only numbers are real. Numbers. The rest of us don't exist. We're just manifestation of numbers. I mean, I wish I were joking. I wish you could wish you were joking. But as that grows out of, as you know, a couple of confessions that I'd like to introduce. One of them very quickly at the beginning. At the Italian Film Festival this year, there was a wonderful film called The Confessions. And if you imagine the, the the directors of the film, the writers, they've got this idea, they've got to get the money, so they go to the producers and they've got a one-line pitch. And the one-line pitch is, the head of the IMF goes to confession to St. Francis of Assisi. I can just imagine the mayor Coopers. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> what we've got to think of is where the plot goes. I'm not, I'm not going to be a spoiler because it is very funny and very intelligent, much more intelligent than people who think that algebra is real because that's one of the jokes in the film, which is how it came into the discussion this morning. The finance ministers from the G8 have come together. They can see that a second smash is somewhere in the not-too-distant future. In the wings. In the wings it is, and they think if it happens, it'll really cost the rich and powerful. So what we've got to do is to start a smash that we can control. (laughs) And the way they're going to do it, they have an algorithm. Hurricane wranglers. That is going to give them control of the next big smash in the world capitalist system. Now... I'm not going to go any further in it. As I say, it's very humorous, very black in lots of ways, um, and so intelligent and so perceptive, and it's called The Confessions. As far as I know, it's not scheduled for a commercial release, but clever people are able to find their ways of getting these movies, you know, downloading and things. I don't wish to encourage any any, any illegal... Wrongdoing. Wrongdoing, but... As a as a kind of Christmas treat, um, it really it you know it it is truly something that everyone would enjoy. And, and, and not just that, of course, uh, Humphrey. Uh, the uh, it points to something that's uh, very important, which is, of course, the uh, predictions of uh, further calamity, economic calamity for the economic system, the capitalist system coming up. Well. The people who claim to be the masters of the universe keep saying so. And I, who know nothing about this except what I'm told by the masters of the universe, have been repeating this, uh, you know, week after, well, month after month to us. And yet here we are at the end, almost at the end of 2016 again, and the second coming hasn't smashed, if we can put it around like that. Um, and yet they keep saying it will. I mean, well, you know, just very briefly repeat that, you know, the Bank for International Settlements, who are supposed to know something about what's going on in the world, um, they've been, you know, they, well, they predicted the one 
uh, in 2008. I mean, in 2007, they said, this is what's going to happen. No, almost nobody else was, and they said, and I thought, oh, well, I've been following them ever since and telling the 3CR people what they've been saying. 2014, the bank says, everything the governments have done have postponed the day of reckoning. So it's still coming. This year, they said, not only have they postponed the day of reckoning, they've made the day of reckoning worse by everything they've done to postpone it. And what have they done to postpone it mainly? Printed money. Pump, pump money out into the system. Quantitative easing. Well, yeah, all of this. You know, and they're all up to it now. Um, it's very interesting uh, that you mention as well that plus the movie that you saw because I watched The Big Short last night, just coincidentally, mm-hmm. and they were talking about obviously how the collapse happened or, well, they were they only partially explained it because they didn't have a Marxist analysis, I think. No. <laughs> but they, they also ended with the fact that apparently in 2015 some banks started marketing what they called bespoke um, tranche uh, bonds, which apparently is basically just another word for those bad mortgages that they packaged up and called fancy names in uh, two thousand in the early two thousands. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's. Oh, before you move on, you know that yeah. the Big Short was uh, given a prize for being the best comedy of the year. Well, it is in a way, but it is the best black comedy of the year. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, you know, I mean, this is the reality. You know, I mean, as, you know, as you keep saying, if it weren't serious, you know, I mean, the old Australian cartoon joke: "Stop laughing, this is serious." Um, you know, the man, you know, hanging um, precariously off the, yes. the bottom of the bloke's <laughs> pants. You know? Fiscal I mean, cliff. That, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of where they are. But the, the effect of it, and this is one of the things we, you know, I mean, why have they been pumping all this money out? Why, I mean, I mean, that's not the solution. And they know what the solution is. The solution is they have to close down the excess capacity in the capitalist system. I mean, that's what caused it. Um, all, the, all the capacity for overproduction. So what are you saying? Is that like being a very fat person and needing to go on a diet? Well, it's worse than that for them. Because if they put it on a, you know, put the system onto a diet, large parts of that human body would rebel against it. Oh, that's exciting. That's that's what they're frightened of. Our analogies are getting better and better on Solidarity (laughs) (laughs) Breakfast. Well, I mean, this is, you know, that's what they're frightened of. I mean, um, some places it is just fear of losing the next election. Um, I quote the uh, you know um, the head of, well, of one of these you know European political organisations is saying, look, we know what we've got to do. What we don't know is how to get re-elected after we've done it. Um, and that's obviously the case. Is you know governments just get you know thrown out because people want to punish who's ever been in for what's gone wrong, but. All they can do is to put somebody else in without really thinking, well, necessarily that everything's going to get much, you know, everything's going to be improved by simply changing the government. So that's one, I mean, there is this fear, and they're not frightened. We may regret it, but they're not, and there's no reason why they should be, of a proletarian revolution coming out of this in the next 12 months. That's not what they fear. What they fear is more of the social disruption the total collapse, their system is pretty ungovernable as it is. 
at that social cultural level and, you know, the ordinary political level. And they're just fearful that if they really get stuck into the excess capacity, and there is some, you know, I mean, the closure of the car plants in Australia is, you know, is one example of what they've got to do. But that's small bickies compared to what is in the entire system. So give, me, give us an idea of what that kind of landscape, financial landscape, would look like in Australia. Well, it would look like what's happened to the Greeks. Oh, I mean, if you want, right. you know, if you, if you want, and you know, I mean, that is, I mean, they've been able to screw the Greeks because they're small and, you know, you know um, and they've got them, you know, within the control of the, you know, of, of the, the political and the whole economic and the military system there. I mean, there's that control on it. Um, but, you know, it's what, you know, it's, I mean, that, that's really what it would look like. But, I mean, I mean we can't be separated. You know, the, the fate of what happens in Australia is very much connected to all of our international economic connections. And the place where excess capacity is really rampant and indeed has got worse since 2008 because of these policies to try and you know, sort of soften the blow from, from the crash in 2008, of course, is China. Um, and there's now a group of economists in China who are saying, are pointing out the fact that there is now more, more excess capacity in, in the Chinese system today than there was in 2008. And that what the Chinese have got to do in order to... And they keep pumping money out. I mean, their solution every time that things look as if they're going to go down is to do two things, and they've been doing it again this year. They manage the statistics. Upon wonder, growth in each quarter this year has been exactly (laughs) 6.7%. No, <laughs> exactly. Okay. Which How's is almost the... oh, before you go on. But this is almost yeah. exactly the right number too for the sixty-five uh, workers that were killed recently in China when the scaffolding fell down. Well, sixty-five out of the how many tens of tens of thousands that are killed. I mean, I think. Mm. I mean, I don't want to over exaggerate, but I think you know, was it a hundred, couple of hundred thousand, four hundred thousand workers killed in China every year? Ugh. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean. The lives of all those 65 are precious, each one of them. But you've got to put it against this enormous amount of, of what else is there. And some of it, of course, is happening because of the excess capacity in these tiny coal mines. You know, sort of people having coal mines in their backyard. Oh, God, um, you know, so, outrageous. I was going to ask you about yeah. what's related to that, but how is the Australian economy going? I know there's been some talk in the ruling class that they've apparently weathered the end of the mining boom. Do you agree? Well, it depends on what they've weathered is the end of the construction phase. The next phase is the important one is, is there going to be a market for what they have to dig up and then send out of the country? They've got to find someone who's prepared to buy it and at a price that is going to pay them for all of the money that has been poured into that, you know, huge um, amount of infrastructure that had to go into place. And I I mean, that's what we've really seen. It's only now that all of that is becoming available. So there's now, in a sense, more excess capacity here at a time in which you have to ask, is there going to be much more demand for iron ore and for coal and for a 
you know, the other things that we've been hoping to 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 get out there. Now, um, if that's not there, and I'm not sure any... Um, is there going to be a time for me to come back before the end of the year? And yeah, yeah, there's one. We've slotted you in. We we want right, you back. Right. You're, you're going to be on the last program. Marvellous. That's Because live. what I wanted to talk about then was three of Donald Trump's proposals for the economic, and one of them is this trillion-dollar infrastructure. Oh, right. Now, now I won't say any more about Cash it now, cow, but, cash cow, cash cow. But if it happens then there would be a dem- more demand for iron ore and things. You know. So they may come out of that um, reasonably no well. One, no, well, no wonder the um, uh, stock exchange in America is humming with Trump being at the helm. They obviously well, all believe that this is what's in the future. And so did the... We talked earlier in the year about the Baltic Dry Index, which is the shipping index. Ah. And since that happened, it's gone vertical. Uh, because all the companies think, my God, if this happens, we have to put forward contracts in now for two years' time. Ah, uh, that's so what's it, going it's on. just an extraordinary shot. But we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks' time. Okay. And before, uh, uh, just, I've just got to tell listeners, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, Kim, and our extraordinary economist, uh, historian, uh, Humphrey McQueen. Now, Humphrey... You've said a fantastic thing in the notes that we received, and neoliberalism is secondary to the needs of capital. Well, it serves the needs of capital, but so often, I mean, God, you know, I just... We we had a session on this earlier in the year. People keep saying, you know, you hear them saying that it all happened because of neoliberalism, as if there's this bad idea out there that gets into the heads of nasty people and you know, terrible things happen to workers. It's like you've well, got a house that's got a dead thing in the in the um, foundations, and you can't find that smell. The boogeyman. Well, well, you know, I mean, it's it's this. You know, when, where is the materialism in this? You know, well, the materialism is in the need of capital, and neoliberalism is the ideology that then tries to sell this. So it is important to them, but neoliberalism is a very good idea. For the capitalist, um, and we have to get beyond. And the reason, of course, that you get people going around—we heard it again this week—that um, it's it's an ideological attack. Well, yes, it is. There's always ideology involved, but but they're not doing it because they've got bad ideas. They've got very good ideas on how to help the boss. Um, no, they happen to be bad ideas for the rest of us. But we've got to make that class analysis first. And secondly, we've got to say, what are the real needs in the real economy? And how do the ideas that come into the system um, advance that and justify it and confuse people about what has got to happen? So that's my constant beef about, you know, people saying something like neoliberalism did it. No, it didn't. Um, I mean, it wasn't Colonel Mustard in the in the <laughs> library. Well, God, you know, I mean, I mean, Marx is a great example of this. Of you know, of the, of the man who thought that people drowned because they believed in the law of gravity. And if only <laughs> they could get this idea out of their head, then they wouldn't drown anymore. You know, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that we're you know, we're kind of having to combat to get to the hard stuff about how capitalism works. And I can understand why, how much easier it is to think, oh, there's just an idea. Well, what we've got to do is to put in the hard yakka. And, I, you know, I mean, I just, you know, when, 
I know perfectly well from myself how much hard yakka you've got to put in to try to understand it, even to stay two steps behind what's going on, which is about all I can manage to do. But that's all we've got to try and do. And there's, there is no, there's no easy way out. There's no... I mean, anything else gets to be, well, you know, to be unkind and say nothing more than laziness. You've really got to work at it. Yeah, it's able. interesting because I think... They see you not as a threat if all you're doing is proposing to combat the idea of neoliberalism in the abstract. But if you actually start organising class struggle, that's when they realise you're a threat. Yeah, and you've got to organise it about the practical ways in which the idea is being used to justify what it is they are actually doing on the ground. Um, you know, So, I mean, it's the combination, as you rightly say... Um, it has to be organised as a real struggle uh, and organising lots of people to be involved in it. I mean, I've got an old comrade friend and anyone puts up a proposal as to what she says, she said, well, how are you going to build a mass movement out of that? And I think, yep, that's not a bad question to put up to yourself every time you come up with, oh, why don't we go off and do this? Well, unless you're focusing on that, and particularly now, which is why all through the last few years I've been trying to get people's attention onto this, the fact that there is this unresolved crisis. Well, I mean, crisis isn't the right word because it can't go on for nine years and have a crisis. But there is this implosion in the capitalist system that is still there. And they are not going to work it out. They know what they've got to do. In the Chinese case, these people, you know, these Chinese economists, I mean, they're all neoliberal economists, of course. Um, what they're saying is, in the six biggest sectors of the Chinese economy, even if you just took out only 10% of the excess capacity, you would have to sack 4.3 million people. Now, given how much social unrest there is in China already and has been for, you know, 30 years, imagine the impact that that would have. And the Chinese government are really frightened about this. Um, which is why they keep pumping money to the economy to, to sort of hope that it isn't going to happen. Uh, but, you know, even there with that control system and, you know, remind ourselves the reason they're putting money into the PLA is not to invade Tasmania. It's to repress their own people. That's, that's why you have this big defence build-up in the, in, the, in the People's Liberation Army that, you know, so-called, as it you know, was 60 years ago, but, you know, hasn't been for a long time. So... That's the situation in China. They know that, but they're not going. You know, they're not worried about whether they're going to get, you know, where the electoral cycle is going to go because they don't have an electoral cycle. What they've got is something more immediately demanding, which is all of that social unrest that you know that that is everywhere. I mean, we're talking about how many people are killed. I mean, there are. I mean, they register uh, ten, twenty thousand social. Um, incidents, which they call them, uh, of people engaging in anti-state behaviour, of taking over things, and, you know, um, and they're terrified. I mean, uh, all of the mayors of the Chinese, you know, urban areas, I discovered last year, they all live inside the military bases. Oh, isn't that fascinating? 
it tells you something very real, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly They're does. They're not game to live outside. Mm. Um, now that's you know I mean they're trying to keep that lid really down there and you know and you know so far they've been successful you know they everyone's been postponing the day of reckoning um, but you know one day that day of reckoning is going to come and you know the um, head of the um, the office of the treasury in Australia uh, John Fraser now he's a very interesting character he spent twenty years with the Union Bank of Switzerland. What did he do there? He he organised their tax avoidance schemes. It's called global wealth management. Wow, is the polite term. And they brought him back here to be head of our, you know, you know try and get some sense into Joe Hockey or you know um, that boy, Scott as I call him, people, that boy. You know, yeah, <laughs> you know. So and I, and yet. I mean, he has said recently, and it wouldn't be a bad line, I don't know, yeah, we're running up to time, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Um, but yeah. go on. So, it's, not, it's not too bad a line to, to sum up what we've been saying. He said about five weeks ago, he said, everything is fine until it is not. <laughs> it's like what we say, you know, it's capitalism that creates revolutions, not socialists. <laughs> well, you know... To a degree. Yeah, to, you know, and because now... You know, the, the sad fact in, in this day that, you know, that while there is enormous disorder in the capitalist system, there's there's not much order in the forces of opposition to it. No, you know, that's right. And way. and before before you get because yeah, anyway, uh, that, that, that no, but that's that's a much more som- a somber thing that people it's all key thing. yeah that's the key thing. Then people have to uh, think on this. But um, I, I'd like to finish on this bit, which is that capital can expand only through the exploitation of our labour and by plundering the wealth of na- nature. Yeah. Now those features will be constant for as long as capitalism exists. What must keep changing is how the agents of capital organise the exploitation and the plunder to ensure its expansion. Yeah. Now, this is an end game. Well, it can, well, you know, it's. I mean, what we remember that they will all of those crises that arise, all of those costs, as long as they can shift the burden onto us. Then they'll keep. Then they'll try and keep their system going. They're not going to suddenly say, "Oh, I can see that we're plundering nature too much. We're doing this." We're <laughs> That's doing right. then, then we've got to stop. They are you know, individually. They might think, "Oh, this is a bad thing." Collectively, as a class, they can't do that. Um, and that's really what we're up against. And the other thing we're up against is that we can't, that we still need to get more and more people to understand that it is that combination of the exploitation of our labour and the plunder of the wealth of the natural world that is enabling the system to go on. And that's, well, I mean, that's what 3CR is for. Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Humphrey, for joining us this morning. Speak to you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Yeah, the man. Uh, yeah, we've come to the end of uh, the show, Solidarity Breakfast, this morning. That was very interesting, Kim. Yes, very interesting. The economic stuff and how it informs um, the ideological as well. <laughs> uh, well, the program today, we uh, went down to the southwest coast of Victoria and uh, looked at uh, the uh, commercialisation of public lands. 
which is a big fight. You need to be onto it. It's not just the beaches being used for racehorses to be trained uh, and being supported by legislation coming from the Victorian government, but it's actually across Australia assault on uh, public lands being used for commercial interests. And it's it's a big deal. It's a fight that uh, people should be fighting. Uh, As well, uh, we had the week that was, like we always do. Mm-hmm. Um, we also spoke to Nazarene about the anti-fascist demonstration. Oh, what a breath of fresh air Nazarene is. Yes. She's fantastic. And uh, so that's us signing off. We're going to uh, leave you with... I really like this song. It's it's this uh, group of people called Sincerely Grizzly and it's called Two-Face. Coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.